This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to episode 85 of the Grace Enough podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum, and this week I sit down with Marcus Watson. We discuss his journey through a false accusation that led him to a deeper understanding that God's love is truly the only thing he could never lose. You will hear Marcus talk about the vortex of darkness he entered and the moments of light God provided. You will also hear Marcus describe his journey of fully embracing and believing that he is the beloved of God. Before diving into this week's conversation, I want you to know that I desire to connect with my listeners. I am learning the best way to do that is through my monthly newsletter. It's basically where I share more of my life behind the scenes and the message that God has entrusted to me. It is where you can ask questions or share feedback. If you aren't a part of that community, will you take a moment? Go to graceenoughpodcast.com and enter your name and email address. Once you do that, you'll receive the next inside look at Grace Enough Podcast. Go ahead. I'll wait. Now that you're back, let's begin episode 85 with Marcus Watson, Betrayed and Beloved. Well, good afternoon, Marcus, or maybe it's morning, kind of, for you. Yeah, it's 11, just after 11. For oh, me. yeah, so, so that's, morning, that's morning. right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here today. Yeah, I'm really glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Amber. Well, introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell everybody a little bit about your family and what you do. Okay, uh, so I uh, live in San Diego, and I've been here about 13 years. Um, I have a wife and three kids. 15, 13, almost 13 this month, and um, uh, eight, and it, they're a lot of fun and sometimes uh, challenging, uh, but always uh, great, and I love them. <laughs> that's right. Said every parent ever. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But, you know, it, it, and it's fun uh, with the older ones now because the conversations get more uh, interesting and deep, and yesterday, you know, we were talking... I was talking with my 15-year-old about the Enneagram. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and what do you think my friend is? He's an eight. And, man, he's an eight. But uh, your, Which your is the son challenger is? my son is. Yeah. Oh, I know what an eight is. We've got a, yeah. We have questioned my 10-year-old already. I'm like, I know I'm not supposed to label you, but uh, I am pretty sure you're yeah. an eight. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know the, the Enneagram is he, when he was younger. But I'm like, man, he is nothing like me. Like, I'm a nine, which is the oh, peacemaker, the right? yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, he is so different than me. I don't know what to do with this. And then when we realized, oh, okay, and and his, it was funny. He was he was maybe 14, so maybe about a year ago, we we said, Michael, we think you're an eight. And uh, then we had him read the description, and he's like, oh my gosh, it feels like they're reading my mind. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, all these. Yesterday he was telling me all these. Like when I read that, I felt like they were exposing secrets that I didn't want anybody to know about (laughs) me in terms of how I feel and think on the inside. Well, that's the thing. uh, They say you're not supposed to label people with the Enneagram, but man, it's so hard when you're 
particularly with family members, because my mother-in-law yeah. constantly struggles to know what she is. And I'm like, you're totally a five. And the fact that you said that makes me know even yeah. more that you're a five. <laughs> yeah, right, right. I, it's a great it's a great tool, I think, uh, just to help understand people and yeah. to know, okay, this is just kind of how they're wired, you know? That's and right. I don't have to get annoyed, you know? Yes. I can just respond. Yeah, that's <laughs> as, what I've said know, a lot. Like, yeah. it really increases your empathy for people who yeah. are just different than you. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I love it. So anyway, um, that's my kids. That's my family. I'm a pastor. I uh, currently serve a small church in the Imperial Valley, Imperial County, which is kind of agricultural Southern California. Um, I live in San Diego. I commute about two hours. Wow. Part time. Um, so I'm out there a couple of days a week and then work from home the rest of the week. Uh, but they're a great little congregation. The town uh, of Westmoreland is um, uh, very poor. Lots of... Uh, food insecurity. And so mm. it's pretty cool. They have a great food pantry ministry that uh, does a lot of good and yeah. uh, just really grateful to be a part of that. So yeah. And then I've got a podcast, Spiritual Life and Leadership, and uh, uh, that's a lot of fun to do too. <laughs> that is a lot of fun. And yeah. I mean, you're an author now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I just wrote a book called uh, Beyond Thingification, which, uh, and then subtitle, uh, Helping Your Church Engage in God's Mission. The idea being, I think a lot of times we... I mean, people in general, but we tend to objectify others and pastors and churches just as much as anyone else, where people, we thingify people in our congregations. Oh, they become attendance numbers or giving units and people in the community become potential attenders, right? As opposed to people who are, you know, struggling with real things mm -hmm. and, um, and God is doing things that we may not be aware of. So anyway, so getting beyond that kind of thingification involves letting go of our own agendas and just becoming aware of what is God already doing in people's lives in our community and then just getting involved in what God is already doing. Yes. It's interesting because you, I feel like I never, well, I've definitely never met someone who grew up in Los Angeles, yet was a <laughs> pastor's kid. I think um, I can get the stereotype of, oh, there's there are churches in Los Angeles. <laughs> That's so narrow-minded, <laughs> yeah. I know. But tell us a little bit about that, just childhood, uh -huh. growing up as a pastor, a little bit of your faith journey with that. So, yeah, so my dad's a, a pastor. He's retired retired now. So I'm, I am originally from Los Angeles, although I did live a few other places. I uh, lived in Germany from about ages five to eight. My mom's German, and so we spent a few years there. And then uh, came back to L.A., and then f when I was in sixth grade, we moved to uh, western Pennsylvania. And then I actually lived near Pittsburgh for about 12 years until I graduated from college, and then back to L.A. And, you know, L.A. is... Uh, you know, unique, uh, but but I, I love it. It's a great city, um, and there are lots and lots of Christians, and it's much more diverse than anybody thinks. Uh, sometimes right. I'll be, uh, so you've got conservatives and liberals and progressive and whatever, you know, all, all across the board, uh, politically, theologically, everything, um, and lots of mega churches in Los Angeles. I mean, that's where, you know, Saddleback is. Um, oh, that's right. Rick, Rick Warren, Erwin McManus, Mosaic. I don't know if you're familiar okay. with that one. That's in L.A. So anyway, lots of big churches. I, I wasn't a part of that world. I was, uh, my dad's uh, Presbyterian. Uh, I'm Presbyterian, which is, you know, it's not mega church. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, I grew up uh, 
grew up with faith, uh, grew up uh, believing in Jesus. And um, my mom tells me that when I was like three or four years old uh, during my bedtime prayers, she said that you prayed, tells me, um, dear Jesus, I really, 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 really want to be your child. You know, and she says, I think that's when you became a Christian. I was like, And then 75 more times after that, right? That's right. That's right. Every summer at church camp. That's right. That's right. Well, and so then what happened was actually, so I grew up, you know, believing in God, believing in Jesus. Uh, when I was 12, we went to a Billy Graham crusade. And so that's where, so I went forward at that thing, not because I didn't think I was already a Christian, but because I kind of wanted to make that decision at an age that I could remember it. Mm-hmm. And um, and so that was kind of a milestone for me. And then, you know, junior high and high school, I was the good Christian kid in school and in youth group. And uh I would be judgmental towards those kids who would listen to secular music, you know, and uh, (laughs) shame on them. (laughs) That was me, Marcus. Uh oh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And so, anyway, so that was good. I mean, that was, that was what it was. I I was certainly growing in my faith uh, during that time. But then in college is when I really started to grow in my faith. I got involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. Mm -hmm. They call themselves Crew these days. Uh, It was, transformative for me. Um, Same. I learned how to share my faith. I learned how to lead a Bible study. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned how to give a talk, you know, yeah. and uh, found I really enjoyed doing that, you know, yeah. and uh, yeah, that was pretty, pretty great. And I still have some great friends from that time uh, that I haven't seen personally in a long time, right. but we still communicate on Facebook and all that, you know. Yeah, so my very cool. best friends from college. I was just on a walk today with our women's director from our church and her daughter just went to college. I mean, you know, they mm. just dropped her off this weekend. Yeah. And we were just talking about those emotions, but then also how excited she is and, you know, what yeah. great opportunity is for campus ministries. Because people like she was saying her daughter can't even go up and visit the floor above. Like you're just mm. you'll get written up. But I said, oh, oh you know, I mean, co- college ministries, they can just meet out in a big field. And, oh, yeah. right. you know, people are dying to love on you. And so mm-hmm. I said to her, I'm like, you know, that's what. God used college ministry to change my life. It's where, you know, you're with all your peers. The peer pressure is just different if you're with, you know, other believers. And I mean, it just changed my life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. hundred percent. Well, and now you were at Western Pennsylvania, Grove City, right? I remember hearing this on Eric's podcast. Oh yeah. Yeah. Right. My husband went to Grove City his first year of college. Okay. And then blew out his knee playing football. So he oh. came back to Kentucky. <laughs> but we have some friends from Tampa okay. whose kids are at Grove City right now. So I know oh, all wow. about Grove City. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's where I lived. And I was I was going to go to Grove City College. Turns out I, I was a communication major. They canceled mm-hmm. that major like the summer before I started. So I switched over to Slippery Rock University, 15 minutes away, which is a real school. <laughs> I was <laughs> and, ready uh, to say, hmm, I've not yeah. heard of that one, but. Uh, well, yeah, it's a real school. Uh, it gets uh, joked about, uh, but it's a, it's a real state school and I got a real diploma. <laughs> well, okay. and so you were involved in campus ministry, but you still always had this desire to make it in Hollywood. Yeah, that's right. So, kid, I wanted to be a movie star. And uh, as I got older into high school, I, I was like, no, I want to be a, a movie director, you know. And um, that was that was my dream. I remember when I was a little kid, I would pray, dear Jesus, please help me to be able to become a, an actor while I'm still a kid. <laughs> I wanted to be a child actor. Probably healthy that I didn't. Um, <laughs> Statistics definitely play yeah. out in that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And my, my parents were like, hmm, yeah, keep praying for that, you know. <laughs> we won't be pursuing that but, anytime uh, <laughs> soon. <laughs> that's right. But anyway, but after college, so my dad, uh, who, you know, who was a pastor at the time, uh, took a position as a pastor in a church in Los Angeles again. And so yeah. uh, he made some connections. I got an internship out there through someone. I got to work on a couple of TV shows, a couple of um, music videos. I got cool. to work on a Muppets music video, which was so super cool. fun. Yeah, I got to meet uh, the guy who does Gonzo uh, just in the lunch line, you know, which yeah. was super fun. And, just and everybody watching... knows who that is, right? Kids, yeah. adults. Like, if you don't know who Gonzo is, where have you been? Yeah, yeah. And and so it was him and it was Frank Oz who does Miss Piggy who were there. They were the kind of the two puppeteers there for that day. And it was so fun. They they were doing a music video and, and they did some, um, like a promo in, in between where the puppets were talking to each other. But between takes... The two puppeteers did not talk to each other. The puppets continued to talk to each other. So it was like, hey, maybe next time you should say this. Da, 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 you know, <laughs> I'm like, this is so awesome. That is so cool. Uh, yeah. Uh, so that was uh, I really enjoyed it. But I did develop sort of a love hate relationship with Hollywood because, you know, uh, people at the top are treated like royalty and people at the bottom are not. <laughs> Let's just say that. And I wouldn't say that I was treated like terribly, but I just didn't like this sort of hierarchy or, you know, the way people were just like treated, like almost not quite like gods, but you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But I, I remember dropping off. I, I was a, I was, I was a production assistant. So that's like bottom of the totem pole. You, right. you, you, it sounds impressive, but it's not, it's like you assist in the production and that's it. Whatever you, whatever somebody yeah. needs, you just help Bring out with that. Bring the coffee. Sound. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so there's one day I had to go drop off a script to, you know, the host of this uh, TV special that I was working on. And um, I dropped it off. And this is kind of before email or email was still very new. And so I dropped it off to the wrong place. I stuck it through like a mail slot, but it was the wrong one. I thought it was right. Got back. And then the associate producer was like, Marcus, you can't make mistakes like this, especially with people like this. He's a he's a star. And then I was like, oh, okay. And then he goes, well, he's not a star, but he is a celebrity. And I'm oh. like, oh, okay. So he's not this, mm. but he's this, right? He's not quite at the top. And so you don't have to worry as much about it anyway. And so that was sort of a, an insight for me into like, I just don't, I just don't like it. And then, you know, I, I was involved in my church. I was on our worship band. I was in the college career group in our church and I wanted to stay involved in that. And so Anyway, so I got to a point where I was just like, I think uh, I think I'm done with this yeah. and uh, didn't know what I was going to do next, but had kind of three possibilities in mind. Uh, I thought I, maybe I'd go on staff with Campus Crusade because that had been such a great experience. thought maybe I would get a master's degree at a Christian university or maybe I'll go to seminary. And mm -hmm. um, the first of those two I could get into the, by the following, uh, you know, January. This was uh, summer of 96, or I could get into Fuller Seminary that fall. And I was like, what the heck? I'll just give seminary a <laughs> shot and uh, we'll see what happens, you know. And I loved it. Yeah. Like, as soon as I started taking those classes, I just remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I can't believe I get to learn all this stuff, you know. Just felt like I was exactly where I needed to be. Um, That's and so, so awesome. Yeah. So it was good. It took me a while still to figure out that. God was calling me to be a pastor, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe I'd do some sort of media ministry with what I was learning. Yeah. But, you know, eventually that became clear, too. And so. 
And so you went right on in to being a pastor with your first job in Union, Kentucky, right? Being the Kentucky girl. I told you I was going to ask you. I mean, that's a But if you were in Western Pennsylvania, Union is not that much different. Yeah. So what's interesting is it felt like there were a lot of Pittsburghers there. Um, A lot of people, (laughs) a lot of Steelers fans, (laughs) you know. um, Really? Yeah, I don't know. Cincinnati felt like a little Pittsburgh in a way. Like, so we're just south of yeah, Cincinnati, yeah. about 20 minutes, right? Do you know where Union is? Oh, yes. Bro- yeah, I mean, oh. I grew up in eastern Kentucky, born and raised there 27 okay. years, have tons of friends in Louisville. My two college roommates huh. are in Cincinnati, Okay. had friends who played at Union. I mean, yes, yes. Oh, wow, cool. Yeah. See, most people don't know where Union is, but oh, they know, know where exactly Florence where is. <laughs> Right. They know the Florence Yellow Water Tower. That's right. Uh, that's right. <laughs> right. People don't know where Union is. I'm like, you know where the Florence Yellow? Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway. So, it, you know, it was it was definitely different. But it, it, for me, it was somewhat familiar, just the kind of Midwest feeling. And um, it wasn't exactly the same as Pennsylvania, but it was pretty similar. For my wife, it was, I think, a lot different because uh, mm-hmm. she had been born and raised in Los Angeles. Uh, but we enjoyed it. It was good. Yeah. It never quite felt like like home, like we we're going to be there forever. But it was a place that, you know, we definitely did feel called to for that time. Right. And, and I'm grateful for it. Like, I learned a lot. In fact, I would say... Part of the reason I was called there is because I I went as an associate pastor and our senior pastor resigned while I was there. And so then for about seven months, I was the only pastor in the church. And I was like, okay, I'm learning how to be the pastor of the church. Yeah, yeah. And I had to preach every Sunday and I was new, you know, but it was great. Uh, And there were good people and we're still in touch with folks there, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, we we loved it. And, And we just started planning for a trip back. We haven't been back but nice. my kids want to see it. And so yeah. we're going to go back and visit. And Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, in 2007, you were called back or you took a position in San Diego. And, you know, everything was going well there for mm-hmm. quite a while. But there did come a time where you faced an accusation. Yeah, just dive into that. Let's get into a little bit of that part of your story and give us a little bit of timeline of kind of how events unfolded. So, yeah, so 2007 moved uh, to San Diego and uh, we're very excited about that, you know, because it was even though it wasn't uh, it was still about two hours from from home, it was like going home and we're close to family and friends again. And And it's San Diego. uh, and San Diego, like the you perfect know, perfect weather, and, right? I know it's awesome. <laughs> and no matter where you live, you're close to the ocean, which yes. is kind of amazing. LA, you can still be like two or three hours from the ocean because it's so sprawling. But San Diego is much smaller. Even if you're as far away as you can get from the ocean, you're still only half an hour from the ocean, right? Wow, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, so we're super excited to be here, and and we still love San Diego uh, after all this time, and hope we can retire here. You know, yes. but. Um, and the church that I was called to was a good church, and I was there for uh, about eight and a half years. Okay, after being there for about seven and a half years, uh, I went on a sabbatical. About two weeks into that sabbatical, I got a call from our executive presbyter. So he's the person who kind of oversees the San Diego Regional Presbytery. Yes. He called me. He said, hey, I need to meet with you uh, tomorrow, this was a Friday, and he said, can can we meet? And I was like, oh, no, you know, we're going up to, I'm going up to LA to visit some friends. And uh, so I won't be around tomorrow. He's like, oh, 
well, and after some back and forth, he's like, well, can you just cancel your meeting or reschedule it? I was like, no, no, this is <laughs> sabbatical. Asking, yeah, I'm sabbatical. <laughs> and he wouldn't tell me what he wanted to talk to me about. I'm like, I don't know what you want to talk to me about. You know, uh, we'll reschedule for next week sometime. And so finally, we agreed that we would meet on Sunday. And he came over to our house and um, he said, well, uh, I need to let you know that someone has accused you of having a problem with pornography. And I was like, oh, okay. And now full disclosure, it's not like yeah. I've never looked at pornography in my life. I think, um, well, it's just so easily accessible, right? So for years, I have had accountability software yes. on all my devices, right? Yep. Have a great- uh, Like Pure friend, Eyes or something. Isn't that the- Yeah, uh, Covenant Eyes. Covenant that Eyes, that's right. Yeah. And so anyway, so I wasn't too worried about it because I'm like, well, you know, I've I've had this for a long time already. And so uh, and and my accountability partner is another pastor in the presbytery. So anyway, I was like, well, what do you need to do? He's like, we need to do a forensic analysis on your laptop. And I was like, OK, do you want it right now? Do you want my laptop right now? He's like, yeah, that would be good. Uh, so anyway, so I gave him the laptop and uh he said it would take about three days or so, and it turned into about three weeks. And yeah. so that was really, really just frustrating, like, because I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Why is it taking so long? That's right. Uh, and there's a part of me that's like, well, <laughs> let me, let me get, just get to this point. So three weeks into it, uh, he said to me, called me, he said, well, Marcus, the forensic analysis is now finished, but I can't give you your laptop back because it's now a potential criminal investigation. And I was like, what are you talking about? What? That's the only information he gave you. That's it. Yeah. That's all he could tell me or would tell me at that time. And so, of course, I just like fell into this vortex of darkness. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's like I was just scared. I was angry. I was angry in part because we have a process for dealing with accusations and he wasn't following the process. And maybe I'll give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was doing it to protect me so that there wouldn't be anything on my record or something like that. But it really actually left me exposed hmm. to a lack of due process, essentially. Yeah, because this wasn't going on in a legal system, correct? Yeah. It was yeah. they were just doing this at church. That's right. In uh, our denomination, you know, there's a process. If someone want, has uh, allegations against anyone, a pastor or an elder or even another church member, they they go and they bring those allegations. And then we have a process where there's an investigative committee to determine if there's legitimacy to the accusations. And then if they determine that there is, then there's a trial and, and all of this. And mm -hmm. none of that was happening. He's just he just said, we need to do a forensic analysis on your laptop. Right. And so he it was this sort of secret behind the scenes uh, under the table investigation that was happening. And so that left me feeling totally vulnerable and mm -hmm. uh, and in danger. And of course, I was thinking, you know, did somebody plant something on my laptop? I unfortunately, the guy who was our tech guy had become somewhat of a nemesis to me at, mm -hmm. at our church. And um, I was like, did he put something on there? You know, the last time he did an update on my laptop or whatever. Um, and so anyway, so I was I was scared. And it was just a really, really dark time for me. I had a few points of light in, in the midst of that darkness. So one is uh, my friend Kevin, who was my accountability partner, and he really went to bat for me during that time. Mm. He would make phone calls for me. He would write emails for me. He had meetings for me. He and another pastor in our presbytery met with our executive presbyter and said, 
stop. Just stop doing it this way. We have a process. Let's do it the mm-hmm. right way. And and our executive presbyter, he's like, no, no, you know, my advisors have told me I'm I'm doing it the right way, or this is what I should do. And anyway, so I did have uh, Kevin and uh, one other at least uh, for a time who who really went to bat for me, and I was so grateful for that. And uh, Kevin helped not only in terms of this procedural stuff and going to bat for me, but also just sort of as a friend. Yeah. Um, and he would, you know, text me, call me every other day or so. How you doing today? You know, take me out for drinks or whatever. And we would, uh, you know, he he just um, made sure I knew that I was cared for, you know, and that meant a lot to me. Well, and I have to ask you this because just being on like the other side, you know, we automatically assume that people are guilty. Yeah, right. I mean, we assume that. So I'm just wondering for you, what was that like being in this place and just thinking, does everybody around me think that I'm doing this? That was a huge fear for me. Um, so far, at, the, at, at that point, not too many people knew about this, but I was afraid that as people began to know that there would be an assumption uh, that I was guilty. And I do know that there were people who just assumed that I was guilty mm-hmm. and that eventually led to, uh, I'll get to there, but it yes. eventually led to me being voted out of the church. It, uh, I don't even know how to express it, but it just, it made me terribly sad and angry and I felt betrayed. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, I, and I was afraid of how the world would perceive me, right? Uh, Absolutely. I had another moment, which was a moment of light, but also darkness. <laughs> it's it's interesting how in these situations, it's mm-hmm. like light and darkness together, right? Mm-hmm. And somehow God works through that. But I had this moment where I was, I did a lot of praying. I did a lot of spending time in scriptures because I was on sabbatical and I had the time for that. Th- actually, thankfully. <laughs> yes. Um, I had just spent some time probably in a psalm or something and um, probably a psalm of, you know, Lament. Uh, lament, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I spent a lot of time in Psalms of Lament during that time. I was like, oh, yeah, this is exactly how I feel right now. It's exactly uh, why those are in there. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so anyway, so I, I, I was spending some time in silence, and then and I just started thinking about all the things that might happen, right? And I thought to myself, man, I might lose my job, you know, and I eventually did. But then I thought, man, I could lose my ordination, right? Mm-hmm. I could I could lose my reputation in that, you know, people might look at me and say, oh, yeah, Marcus, remember him, you know, don't want to be like that. Mm-hmm. A sort of a pariah, you know, in our in our presbytery or in this. Anyway, and then I thought, you know, and then my mind just started starting going uh, further and further. And I was like, man, I could lose my family if it looks like I'm guilty in some way. And I don't think I actually would have. But, you know, in those moments, you go to these worst case scenarios. And then I thought I could. Oh, holy cow. I could become a registered sex offender. And uh, everyone would always assume this thing about me. Mm -hmm. That isn't even true. And then I thought I could go to prison. And so then I had uh, this picture in my mind of me just sort of sitting in a prison cell having lost everything, right? My job, my ordination, my family, my reputation, everything. And then it's like, uh, I just heard God say, but Marcus, uh, yes, you might lose everything, but you will never lose my love for you, Mm -hmm. right? That's the one thing that no one can ever take away from you. And that was an utterly transformative moment for Mm -hmm. me because it's like, 
I understood God's love in a way that I had never understood it before. I always knew that God loved me unconditionally, mm-hmm. right? Of course. And I taught that and I preached it. And <laughs> But it's like in that moment, I was like, oh, oh, now mm-hmm. I get. And thank goodness I didn't have to actually experience mm-hmm. all those things. Um but it, you know, it felt like in 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 that moment I was kind of experiencing those things. And anyway, so it just made the love of God so much more real for me. And then, you know, and then other things that brought to life God's love for me during that time. Uh, again, my friend Kevin, who was really just faithful to me, and uh, I remember driving home uh, from hanging out with him one day and thinking to myself, or just kind of talking to God and saying, "Lord, He doesn't have to do this. Like He doesn't have right. to." Like he's given up a lot of time and energy, and it sort of revealed to me this sense that I had in myself that, oh, I, I kind of feel like I don't deserve for people to love me, you know? Mm. Uh, and so I had to retrain myself. I went to the beach the next day, and uh, I, I like to surf. I'm not good at it, but it's <laughs> fun. So a lot of times I just sort of sit out there on my board. That's how <laughs> so I feel I, with running. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Good. I like to do it, but I'm not good at it, and it is That's painful. Right, yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> but I was sitting out there, and um, I just, I was like, Lord, I just need a, what, what came to me was, I, I realized that whenever I, so I'd been telling myself for 30 years, um, whenever I sinned in whatever way or needed to confess a sin, Lord, I don't deserve your love, I would say, right? And I, mm-hmm. I, it occurred to me, I was like, holy cow, I've been telling myself for 30 years, Lord, I don't deserve your love. And by extension, it's like I believed in some ways that I don't deserve to be loved by anybody, right? And so I just sat out there and I I just repeated over and over again, Lord, I deserve your love. Lord, I deserve your love. And and I don't mean to say that I've earned God's love, right? right. We don't earn God's love, but I'm worthy of God's love because I'm a child of God created in the image of God, right? Uh, just by the very fact that I'm a human being, I'm worthy of God's love. But I had to use the language of deserve because that's that's what I was trying to unteach myself, that in some way I, I didn't deserve it. So so I was just repeating that. And then um, I'm and then that's when I also realized and I believe that other people that I don't deserve to be loved by others. And so I just started repeating over and over, Lord, I deserve to be loved. I deserve to be loved mm. just by people in general, because what this experience was sort of reinforcing for me was uh, that I don't deserve to be loved. Right? right. Because. Uh, because I'm not, why am I not getting due process? Some other pastor from some bigger church, maybe, you know, might be getting due process, but I'm not. Why am I not? Why don't I deserve due process in this? And so I just had to tell myself, I do deserve to be loved. I do deserve to be loved. So, you know, that was part of the process. I will say another moment of light, (laughs) of goodness in this was when I met with an attorney. And, uh, Actually, my friend Kevin, uh, his wife had had referred me to, and so my wife and I uh, met with her, and we didn't know when we went in to meet with her that she had had experience with child pornography cases, mm. and um, that's what my fear was. I haven't said that yet. My fear was because if it's going to, um, right, if it became a criminal potential criminal investigation, my thought thought was, did somebody put child pornography on there? Yeah. If the accusation is pornography, because I've never looked at that. I know a hundred percent, right? So I knew I I hadn't put it on there, but had someone else put it on there. That was a fear. Yeah, because so at she, this point you still don't have your computer. I still don't. I don't. And I have no idea what's going on. And so 
so so we met with her and she, you know, we talked for about an hour and she was asking questions. She was painting a really bleak picture. If you're guilty, they're going to come to you at, you know, four in the morning and bang on your door and <laughs> put you on arrest. I'm like, holy cow. And then after about an hour, she said, well, I can tell you're not guilty. And I was like, oh, how can you tell? She said, well, you're not asking the right questions. If you were guilty, you'd be asking, uh, you know, how much time am I looking at? What's our defense going to be? And you're just asking about when you can get your laptop back. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was like somebody's this on my team. Yeah, it's like she understands. Somebody knows. Somebody can see what's really going on here. And um, that was just a huge gift, both for me yeah. and, and my wife. I mean, both of us. Well, that's something I want to ask about, too. You know, this whole thing is going on with you. But what in the world? I mean, I don't want you to speak for your wife. Sure. But. I mean, how is your family dealing with this? Because the reality is, it's a stress on everyone. Yeah. So my kids didn't know what was going on. Well, they on. were still pretty young, right? They were still pretty young, yeah. And I actually still haven't told them the whole thing. You yeah. Know, my, my older ones, I'll, my oldest, I, I, don't, I wouldn't mind telling him sometime in the next year or so, probably. But right. um, yeah, it was, it was definitely stressful. And it created a lot of uh, trauma for both of us. I mean, in some ways, it uh, it brought us together. Mm -hmm. And then in some ways, I wouldn't say it it kept us apart, but it just created anxiety. You know, it was just it, it, there was an anxiety in uh, I don't want to say in our relationship, but just around our our life at that time. Mm -hmm. Right. And it just so when there's anxiety, it just creates it creates tension. But the way that I often think about it is that is so often the way the enemy works. He wants to bring in a question of now your wife is saying, I think that I believe 100% that Marcus didn't do this, but what if? Right, exactly. That's exactly it. And so when that lawyer said, I can tell you're not guilty, I think for her it was like, oh, okay, good. I can I can kind of set that. And so that was a gift from God, right? That's right. And so... I think after that, both of us were able to move through it with a little bit more peace. Yeah. Um, that was after maybe about five or six weeks. And so we'd been through a lot already. already yeah. Well, how long did the whole process yeah. take? And kind of tell me how it wrapped up at the end. The worst of it was about three months, 10 weeks, something like that, because it started about two weeks in my sabbatical. It was a 12-week sabbatical. By the end of my sabbatical, uh, our executive presbyter, uh, sent me a text and he said, uh, hey, Marcus, I have your laptop. When do you want to pick it up? In other words, it was over. He also, I had also met with him one time and he said, I just want to let you know off the record, you know, and, and I found out that the FBI had it. My attorney was the one who figured that out. He said they, they told me they haven't found anything or they haven't really found anything. And it's funny, my response was just kind of, okay. And afterwards, I was like, how come it was such a stoic sort of uh, non-emotional response? And I guess it's like because I, I was thinking to myself, well, of course they didn't, right? right. I knew they weren't going to find anything. Yeah. So that was good. And then about week, a week later, he said, hey, I have your laptop. When do you want to get it? And um, I said, I'll get it this afternoon. My friend Kevin said, Marcus, why don't you check with your attorney to see if there's anything, you know, that you need to check on or ask about? So I asked her and she said, whoa, 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 you should not be in contact with him because this is an ongoing investigation as far as we know. Tell him that he can drop the laptop off at my office and you can pick it up for me. Wow. And so I told him that and I said, hey, you know, because this is an ongoing investigation, blah, blah, blah. And his response to me was simply four words, Marcus, what investigation? 
and then signed off with his name. And I was like, what? And I was so angry. What does like, that even mean? I know. It's like he was trying to, I, I think possibly he was sort of covering himself because the whole investigation shouldn't even have happened the way it did, right? He he went around our process, right? Oh. And so, but it made me so angry as though nothing had ever happened. And oh, I was just really upset about that. Um, but it was a few weeks later that I, I did get my laptop back, which was good. However, a week after that or so, I got another notification from our presbytery office stating that now uh, formal allegations had been filed with the presbytery, this time pornography and child pornography. And I was just like, oh, my gosh. Did this take like who did this? Because if the FBI had it to begin with, it seems like to me that would have to be a criminal case. No. Right. Well, so it was a informal investigation. investigation. They were they were. So I think so. Here's what here's what I think happened. So the uh, forensic analyst part of it, I know, is what happened. The forensic analyst basically said, well, I found, you know, it was just pictures of my kids goofing around in their underwear. Right. So he looked. don't at look that. at He's my like, computer. <laughs> I know. Right. I know. Yes. And, and it made me. <laughs> I had a moment where my daughter, who was maybe like at the time, I guess, like seven. And she had a little selfie stick with a phone sitting on the toilet. And I'm like, no, 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 let's not let's not do that. <laughs> Just the other <laughs> day, I'm... Levi was like bending over the pool. And you know, uh, like his crack was showing. Yeah, <laughs> I was right. Like, I know. I gotta take a and picture like, of this. This is hilarious. Uh, so he so this analyst looks at it. And he's like, oh, it's not my not my job to decide what this is. But uh, I am a mandated reporter. So he hands it off to the FBI, the FBI look at it. Oh. And they determine after, you know, eight weeks, six, eight weeks, something like that, there's no pornography here. And so okay. they give them back, right? Yeah. Um, and I will say what I did learn eventually was the person who brought all this was a staff person uh, who I, you know, I would meet with our staff individually every other week or so, just kind of one-on-one time. And she was telling me about her husband's pornography problem. Mm. You know, so I so, you know, we talked about that. And then someone told me that they had overheard her saying, you know, I told, you know, my pastor about uh, my husband's pornography problem. and He just didn't react the way I I thought he would. I bet he has a problem with that, too. Right. <sighs> so I don't know what I did to trigger whatever, <laughs> wow. whatever happened in her. But that's that's where that came from. And um, wow. and so. Uh, in this second investigation, it was stated by I had to go before a, a panel of three people from the Presbytery is very set up very intimidatingly, even though they were all people I knew and, you know, people I considered friends. But well, it was kind of like a court of judgment, right? Was, like and the determination that they had to make was, do, do we put Marcus on administrative leave or not? Right. Does he pose a danger to the congregation? And what they determined was no, because the person bringing the accusations actually is not aware herself of anything improper that Marcus has ever done. It's all based on, well, since it got handed to the FBI, then there must be something there, even though they chose not to pursue an indictment is is Mm. how the language was. That was a gift too, because I was like, okay, good. They also understand that there's actually no evidence to support any of these allegations. Yeah. Yeah. So that then led into a formal investigation, which I'm really actually grateful for because it's now on the record. This has been investigated and it's been found that there's no evidence to support the allegations. That's right. Person who made those allegations was unhappy. So then they went to our elders, made the same allegations. Our elders, this is now 
coming up close to, well, like nine or 10 months. And uh, the elders, I met with them. My friend Kevin came and said, hey, look, I have years worth of uh, accountability reports if you want to see them. You know, <laughs> our new exec- so uh, the old executive presbyter had resigned in the meantime. Our new one came and he kind of got involved because he had to. He's a good guy. And he came and he said, you know, as far as the presbytery is concerned, this is closed matter. And uh, I gave our, our elders a full timeline of everything that happened. My friend and I recused ourselves for about half an hour. They talked. We came back in and they said to me, Marcus, we want you to know that you have our trust as our pastor. I was like, oh, wow. OK. Uh, you know, internally, I was thinking, OK, maybe maybe now, maybe now it'll finally be over. Right. Yeah. Um, and they said, and we are. Uh, someone had suggested, you know, that they asked for my resignation. They said, we're not going to ask for your resignation and we're going to contact our insurance company to, to brace for a potential lawsuit from this other staff person. Okay. But, yes. So they kind of understood what was at stake here too. And I was grateful for all of that. However, one of the elders, for whatever reason, decided to believe the accusations. Mm. And so she left that meeting, resigned from our, our session, uh, which is our board of elders started calling in the uh, people in the congregation saying, Pastor Marcus has a problem with child pornography. Someone called me and told me that, and I was like, well, I guess that's the end. <laughs> because uh, wow. once those accusations or right. even doubts are out there, I mean, there's no coming back from that. And so about a month later, you know, we tried to kind of navigate all of that, but basically about a month later, um, the congregation voted to... Uh, dissolve their relationship with me mm. by a margin of two votes, right? Mm. It was only by a margin of two votes. Wow. But by that time, I will be honest, by that time I was ready to You were to ready. Go. Yeah, yeah, I was like, ugh. And, and when the vote came through, it was like a sense of relief. Oh, okay, thank you, Lord. And yeah. you know what's really cool is the day after that, uh, I was on a plane to Little Rock, Arkansas for a pastor's retreat that had been on my calendar for six months already. And it's like, yeah. okay, God knew that I was going to need this uh, the day after. I got That's right. Back. Well, and through that process, I mean, you've shared quite a few things where God really showed up in what, you know, you would call the dark night of the soul for yourself. And just because you and I and, and a group of friends that we have have had personal conversations I know that we similarly have read through some things and have really learned a lot about just truly being the beloved of God. Yeah, yeah. And so tell me a little about some of the books and just resources that you have really just been instrumental in that lonely, lonely time of God yep. really showing up for you. Yeah, that was actually huge for me during my sabbatical. And this is another way. It's like that God prepared me for what was going to come. Uh, I have a great therapist who's a—and uh, I'm so grateful for him uh, during this time. Yeah. I stepped up to we meeting every week, <laughs> you know, but while all this was going on. He's a Christian. And anyway, he uh, we, we had— uh, made some preparations for my sabbatical. He's like, he's, he recommended some of these books that I, that I was reading. Yeah. And so for instance, Henry Nowen, life of the beloved, yes, amazing book, just about our belovedness. And, uh, one of the things that he says is, you know, once you discover yourself to be God's beloved, it's like, all you want is to tell everyone else or for everyone else to know that they too are God's beloved. And I was mm -hmm. like, oh yeah, that's why. So after all this kind of, even, while I was still in the middle of it, after the after my sabbatical and went back to church, it's like I was in a place spiritually where I could 
preach and could talk about God's love, even though it was still kind of happening. But that book um, was transformative for me and and helped me to really think about and focus on uh, the love of God during this time. Abba's Child by Brennan Manning was a great one. Um, Surrender to Love by David Benner. And um, I read that one. Oh, it's it's so good got a, a line uh, in, in like the first chapter. So he's, he says, you know, what, what would you think if God, if God could say anything to you, what would, what do you think God would say to you? And I wrote in the margin, I assume God would say something like, you're doing okay, Marcus, but come on, you can do better. And then he goes on, uh, basically he's, he, I think, assumed people would believe those kinds of things. He yeah. goes on to just sort of destroy <laughs> that, that idea, that idea. of God. Yeah, and that it's not about earning God's love; it's just about surrendering to it. He, mm-hmm. I love it. He he describes it like a lazy river at a water park. He's like, you can't force a lazy river. You just lay in it and you enjoy it, and that's how God's love is. You just lay back and you receive it, and it gets poured onto you and into you, and um, so you just surrender to love, right? Mm-hmm. And then he's got a couple of great books that are part of a trilogy I, I, that I've been reading just this year. Uh, the second one is called The Gift of Being Yourself. Uh, which I think is also, I've come to understand spiritual growth and discipleship as the process of becoming more fully yourself, as opposed to being a false version of of yourself, of self that needs to prove themselves to the world, or a self that needs to show everyone how great you are, how or or even how spiritual you are, how Christian you are, uh, right? It's just the more you come to know the love of God, the more you are free to be who you really are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third one is called Desiring God's Will, and I'm, I'm actually reading that one right now. And it's just about allowing God's will to become your will, you know, that you want the things that God wants. But Surrender to Love during that time was so good. Oh, and then uh, uh, the one about the prodigal son um, by Henry Nouwen, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son, that's what it's oh, called. Oh, Okay. Yeah, also so good. Um, it's his reflections on the painting by Rembrandt and the story itself, where he allows the painting to sort of inform his reflections. Oh, man, that was also good. Yeah, <laughs> okay. well, and my husband loves The Way of the Heart, which is also a Nowen book, and he yeah. he just read it again like a few weeks ago for the, mm. I don't know, the 50th time, I think. <laughs> yeah. Is that the leadership one? That's another good one. I can't remember now, oh. but... Um, I, could I don't look know. behind me, but yeah. Okay. Anyway, anything by now and is is fantastic. It's really and, great um, stuff. Yeah, I know I'm reading yeah. a book right now that I just started reading that I've thought about you so many times because mm-hmm. just a lot of the conversations that we've had um, called renovated, and mm-hmm. it is by Jim Wilder, and he was really he was good friends with Dallas Willard, and mm-hmm. they were supposed to kind of write this book together. So it's you know, Willard's in one chapter, it's like one of his lectures. And then the next chapter, um, Wilder is kind of going through some of the stuff. And it's just, I mean, just yesterday, I was reading a lot about the kingdom of God and just Mm, how you really have to understand the love of the father in order to really be living in the kingdom of God here and now. Right, right. Now, Right? Yeah. Not at the end of the world. That's right. <laughs> and you love you to die. talk about yeah. that, like living yeah. in that shalom. Yes. And so yeah. many people, including myself, I'm beginning to kind of understand that a little bit more, have absolutely zero understanding of that. And so mm-hmm. what would you say that kind of means? And how are you living that out a little bit more in your day-to-day life? Yeah. So 
what this experience did for me, I feel like it gave me just greater clarity on what really matters, right? What really matters to God. Uh, just to give a frame it a little bit, you know, prior to this experience, um, I really wanted to be a great pastor and I wanted my church to be a great church. And I wanted people to say, man, what a great church and what a great pastor, you know? And, and then God was like, nope. (laughs) Uh, and it just kind of broke all of that, um, unhealthy and egotistical sort of desire in me. And it's not that I never, uh, you know, it's not like that never creeps back in, uh, but, but not nowhere to the extent that it did before, you know? And so what's become clear to me is that, you know, God isn't interested in having big churches. God isn't interested in having, you know, successful ministries. What God is interested in is restoring shalom in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, in, um, making the world the world that he intended it to be from the beginning, right? That world that we see in Genesis 1 and 2, where all creation lived together in harmony, right? Mm -hmm. And there was no shame. People felt safe with each other. Uh, They didn't have to hide from each other. They didn't have to hide from God the way they do after the fall, right? They don't have to cover themselves. And and covering, you know, uh, is in some ways uh, metaphorical, right? It's not just they covered themselves with fig leaves or put clothes on, but they they hid themselves. The hiding, yeah. The hiding. They hid themselves emotionally and spiritually and personally from each other and from God. And Mm. uh, I think what God wants is just for that full restoration of wholeness for all of creation, right? And I think of... um, the brokenness of the world kind of in, in four, in four kinds of relationships, the brokenness, there's brokenness between us and our relationship with God. Right. And so that's part of what salvation is, is to restore mm-hmm. that relationship. But then there's also brokenness between human beings and each other. And, mm-hmm. and God wants to heal that there's brokenness between uh, human beings and the created order. And we see that in the curses in chapter three, that's right? Right. Now there will be pain in childbirth. Now the earth is not going to provide food without toil, right? Uh, There's brokenness in our relationship with the creation. And then there's also kind of an inner brokenness, brokenness with ourselves, this Mm. shame, right? And um, feeling like we have to go through life proving our worth to everyone else. And so these are the four ways that I think of that God wants to heal the world, right? Mm. And so... My job as a pastor, I think now, and and not just as a pastor, as a human being, right? right. As a father, as a just as a neighbor, as whatever, as a husband, um, my job is to just restore the shalom that God wants. And and by shalom, right, it it means peace, peace. but it's not just absence of hostility. It's this comprehensive well-being, right, mm-hmm. where everything is as it was intended to be. And so, right, so in my marriage, my job is to bring shalom into my marriage. In my parenting, it, my job is to bring shalom to my kids' lives. Mm. Uh, and in my church, it's to bring shalom. And and not only to people who believe in Jesus, but people who don't. And, and I, you know, what's interesting is I don't feel the pressure to convince people to become Christians the way I used to. It's just, I just want them to know that they're God's beloved and God will do the rest. And, uh, and it's not, it's not on me to try to get them to pray a prayer or, 
you know, uh, get to the end of the four spiritual laws or whatever, you know, which is a great tool. I'm not, <laughs> it's a great tool, but, uh, but I don't feel that pressure like I used to. I just want people to know that they're God's beloved. And, um, and the more that people really understand that, I think the world becomes more the world that God Intended. wants it to be. That's right. Yeah. And then yeah. they also, I mean, we just, when we feel that way, we tend to start asking questions of, yeah. you know, why do you do that? Why are mm. you like that? Why, you know, and then that does lead to a conversation about God and who he is uh, to us right. and for us and through us and all the right. things. Right. It, it does. It does come back to Jesus it does. Uh, eventually, right? Because uh, he's the source of shalom, right? He's That's the right. source of healing and wholeness, and every, all four of those kinds of relationships, right? Mm -hmm. um, just a side note: I I just preached on uh, Act seventeen, where uh, Paul is in Athens, and he he preaches to the people there and never quotes the scriptures. He never mentions Jesus by name. He does talk. He does mention the man that God raised from the dead, but in that moment. That's as far as he went, right? Yeah. And then someone wanted to talk more, right? And so when people want to talk more, let's talk more, right? And yeah. I'll tell you about Jesus. I'll tell you about why I feel like I'm loved. And it's, yeah, it's because of Jesus. That's uh, right. So anyway, I think that's much more effective than trying to convince someone, <laughs> you know, I agree. here's what you need to believe. And, and same. I mean, that's not what I always thought. But the longer mm. I walk with Jesus, the more and more that way yeah. of living and speaking. Yeah, it's just better. Well, as we go ahead and start closing out, tell everybody the name of your podcast and book one more time. I know we told everyone at the beginning, but just where people can find you. Yeah, so um, my podcast is called Spiritual Life and Leadership. And um, the kind of the point of that podcast is uh, it also comes out of this whole experience. I just want, I think it's important for leaders to lead not just from great leadership practices, but also from a deep uh, union with Jesus. You know, mm -hmm. that's the, the spiritual life and leadership, right? Yes. They go together. You can't have, uh, if, as spiritual leaders anyway, you can't have one without the other. That's right. So, so that's the kind of, so some of the episodes focus, do focus kind of on uh, leadership practices, but a lot of them focus on spiritual formation stuff. So that's uh, the podcast. You can find it just in your podcast app. You can go to MarcusWatson.com, Marcus with a K. Marcus with a K. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, and then my book again, uh, Beyond Thingification. Thingification. I know it's a weird <laughs> word. <laughs> well, the good news yeah. about that one, Marcus, is thingification. If you spell it right the first time, there are oh. not other ones. That's it. Yep. That's the only so one see, find. it really does stand out in the marketplace. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, thanks so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of a lot of fun. Good good conversation. As we close out today's episode, I want to take a moment to remind you, in case you weren't able to do it earlier, to pop over to graceenoughpodcast.com and sign up for my newsletter. I really do want to connect with you. With that, I look forward to meeting back here next Tuesday for episode 86 with Karen Swallow Pryor on Reading Well. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough Podcast. Tune in next time. This episode was brought to you in part by the Better Samaritan Podcast, where Jamie Ayton and Kent Annan discuss everything from simple acts of kindness to complex humanitarian challenges with their guests.
Want to learn how to faithfully do good better? Find insights at The Better Samaritan.